Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This week, the release of the House Intelligence Committee's summary memo criticizing the FBI for partiality in its investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, preceded by the forced early retirement of the FBI's deputy director and persistent beltway gossip that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is going to be fired, has people looking backwards. They're gazing at events that took place 45 years ago, Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre. I'm not really sure those events have much in common with what is happening now. In this FRDH podcast, taken from my archives, I recall those events and speak with one of the participants. Listen and decide for yourself whether there is any similarity between what is happening in Washington today and what happened in October 1973. Is there a danger in victory? When you're discussing history, of course there is. Victors are prone to complacency, which allows the seemingly vanquished, short of doing a Carthage on a place, utterly destroying it and sowing the ground with salt, a chance to rebuild and fight back. Victors are prone to proclaiming the end of history, when history, being essentially the story we tell each other about ourselves and our societies, will never really reach an end until humanity is ultimately extinguished. One particular event of autumn 1973 heralded a moment of clarity, and with it, a delusion of victory. It unfolded on a Saturday night in Washington, D.C., and it was seen at the time as the greatest challenge to the American Constitution since the southern states attempted to secede from the Union and Abraham Lincoln went to war to prevent them. The Saturday Night Massacre, a major turning point of the Watergate scandal, took place on October 20th, 1973. While Americans went about their weekend business, while the war in the Middle East rumbled along, a mere ten days after his vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned over charges of tax evasion, President Richard M. Nixon raised the stakes in his fight to keep the truth about his involvement in the scandal and its subsequent cover-up secret. It's tough to summarize all the events of Watergate from burglary to the president's resignation, the narrative's main turning points were on legal ideas related to executive power and judicial independence in America's Constitution and the statutes and case law that underpin these ideas. Statutes and case law are couched in specialized language. The political and moral philosophy behind them are easier to follow, and it is from the philosophy that the outrage flows. First the details, then the outrage. In May of 1973, Archibald Cox, a law professor at Harvard, was appointed special prosecutor to independently look into the Watergate scandal. The appointment was made by Attorney General Elliot Richardson, himself a Harvard man, who had only just taken up the Attorney General post following the resignation, because of Watergate, of Richard Kleindienst, another Harvard law graduate. The president appoints the Attorney General. In America, it's a far more powerful position than in Britain, combining the legal authority of the Home Secretary, Justice Secretary, and Director of Public Prosecutions. He or she is then confirmed by the Senate. In his confirmation hearings, Richardson had promised to give the special prosecutor complete independence, including subpoena power, to follow the evidence wherever it led. A few months later, it led to the Oval Office, when it was revealed, in a Senate hearing on Watergate, 
so many hearings, so little time to explain each one's legal authority, that Nixon was recording all conversations there. Cox issued a subpoena demanding that Nixon turn over the tapes. Claiming executive privilege, Nixon refused and offered a compromise. A Republican senator would listen to the tapes and provide a summary. Cox turned down the offer and stood by his subpoena power. That was on a Friday. Presidents don't need high-priced media advisors to tell them that if they're going to do something unpopular, they should do it on the weekend when interest in the news is at a low. Late Saturday afternoon, the president ordered his attorney general to fire Cox. Richardson refused and resigned. Nixon then ordered Richardson's deputy, William Ruckelshaus, you guessed it, another Harvard man, to fire Cox. Ruckelshaus refused, and he resigned. The onerous task next fell to the country's solicitor general, Robert Bork, not a Harvard man, who executed the president's order. Cox was fired, his offices sealed, and the FBI sent in to seize papers. All of this took place in the space of a few hours that Saturday evening. Those are the details. Now came the outrage. Anthony Lewis, New York Times columnist, wrote, During his few minutes as acting attorney general, William Ruckel's house had a telephone call from the White House Chief of Staff, General Alexander Haig. Your commander-in-chief has given you an order. There it was naked, the belief that the president reigns and rules, that loyalty runs to his person rather than to law and institutions. It is precisely the concept of power against which Americans rebelled in 1776 and what they designed the Constitution to bar forever in this country. And if you think that overwrought, a more dispassionate observer, Fred Emery, in The Times, wrote, Over this extraordinary weekend, Washington had the smell of an attempted coup d'etat. Last night, as the FBI men moved in without a warrant to seal the Cox files, the whiff of the Gestapo was in the clear October air. Some of the soberest men in government and out are now privately expressing anxiety that the military might now intervene, either to back the president or throw him out. For the first time since Watergate erupted, a plurality of Americans thought Nixon should be impeached. The calls for impeachment came from legislators as well, and not just Democrats. A fair number of Republicans joined in, not so much because of the legal details of the cover-up, but to preserve a basic nonpartisan precept of a functioning democracy. The president, or prime minister, is not above the law. Nixon was as good as gone after his Saturday night folly, although it took some time. The law, when every I is being dotted and T crossed, can be a slow-moving machine. On the day after Nixon's resignation, an editorial cartoonist, four decades is a long time and I can't remember which one, published a drawing of the Constitution, as in the original manuscript, the magnificent opening phrase, we the people, is written five times as large as the rest of the document. The simple caption read, it works. End of story. For many people who had come of age during Nixon's presidency, it was. He was gone, and it felt so right. For many people like me, whose college years coincided with his presidency, the charge sheet against him stretched to infinity. 
the man who invaded Cambodia, on whose watch students had been killed at Kent State, the man who ordered the Christmas bombing of Hanoi when peace talks to end the Vietnam War were underway, the cynic who extended civil rights protection on one hand, but reheated the fire of racial division among the Southern working class on the other, the frankly weird guy who was so darkly obsessed by Harvard, John F. Kennedy's alma mater, and a university to which he had no connection, that he surrounded himself with Harvard men, like Henry Kissinger, a man so insecure that he condoned a dirty trick squad that used police state methods to obtain information on his Democratic opponents who were no threat to his re-election anyway. Gone. We won and were overwhelmed by complacency. In the autumn of 1973, public opinion polls had Ronald Reagan, someone even more right-wing than Richard Nixon, as front-runner for the 1976 Republican presidential nomination. Seemed like a joke. The Republicans were lost to history. Anyway, there were more important things to worry about than Republicans' self-destructive tendencies. Time was advancing on us. The moment to start making a living in earnest was at hand. That autumn of 1973, I was making a living, but not in earnest. It would be a few more years before I found my way to journalism and work in Washington, D.C. I arrived in the Capitol a few weeks before Reagan's inauguration. Over the next few years, I lived on and off in D.C., and each day, each interaction, slowly reinforced for me that everything had changed in the autumn of 1973, but not in the way that I thought. Two things were at the heart of the Saturday Night Massacre, a confrontation about the extent of the president's, the executive's privilege to run his office as he sees fit, and the personal antipathy so many felt for Nixon. The conservative movement never really liked Nixon. He was too much of an internationalist, detente with the Soviets, publicly talking to China, rather than bombing the both of them. He raised taxes. But he was a martyr as well to the cause of a strong executive when a Republican is president. Never again seemed to be the primary motivation. Harvard niceties, East Coast old money, which had dominated the Republican Party, lost what hold it had. The party's center of gravity, which had slowly been shifting westward for decades, Nixon was a native Californian, now tipped all the way over. Reagan, a small college Midwesterner transplanted to California, defeated Yale-educated George H.W. Bush for the nomination and offered him the consolation prize of the vice presidency. The party deepened its hold on the South. These new Republicans were not big on compromise, and the wound from one of their party, if not one of their own, having been driven from office, is one that has never stopped festering. Two Democrats in the last 30 years have made it to the White House. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, special prosecutors and impeachment for real or as a threat, hovered around them almost from the beginning of their terms of office. Payback. In other ways, the Saturday Night Massacre continued to play out. Robert Bork, the man who ultimately carried out Nixon's orders that autumn afternoon, was nominated by Reagan to the Supreme Court. Bork later claimed Nixon had promised to nominate him to the court as the quid pro quo for firing Archibald Cox. The judge was rejected in part because of his willingness to fire Cox. On the day Bork was nominated, in another part of the Capitol building, hearings on the Iran-Contra affair, arguably a worse demonstration of unchecked executive power than Watergate, were taking place. 
On the hearings panel, making the argument for unrestrained executive power, was a congressman from Wyoming who had served in the Nixon White House, Dick Cheney. As the second President Bush's vice president, Cheney, given a helping hand by al-Qaeda's 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center, took the position to its logical extreme. When the president does it, that means it's not illegal, Nixon told David Frost at one point in their famous interviews. Cheney brought that philosophy with him to the Bush White House. So how did this disgraced idea make a comeback? Here's an unprovable theory, at least to professional historians, but it makes sense to me. Five days after the Saturday night massacre, Nixon held a press conference. Deference had long since exited the relationship between the president and the reporters who covered him. Towards the end of the session, the following interchange took place. A reporter asked, what is it about the television coverage of you in these past weeks and months that has so aroused your anger? Nixon answered, don't get the impression that you arouse my anger. You see, one can only be angry with those he respects. He came back to the theme a few minutes later. When a commentator takes a bit of news and then with knowledge of what the facts are distorts it viciously, I have no respect for that individual. A four-decade war on the press's legitimacy had begun. The idea that it was a biased liberal press that made the molehill of Watergate into a mountain of constitutional crisis took root. Legislation was enacted under Ronald Reagan that removed the legal obligation for broadcasters to air both sides of controversial issues. This led to an explosion of opinionated propagandists on the airwaves relentlessly attacking those Nixon had no respect for. It continues to this day, degrading American public discourse. It has fed into the hyper-partisan political culture that has made the U.S. practically ungovernable. Only one of the principals of that evening is still alive, William Ruckelshaus. He runs a foundation in Seattle and is still active in national life. I wrote to him and asked, if you knew that ultimately the president would be forced to resign and that future generations of Republican legislators would spend so much time trying to even the score, would you have taken a long view and done what was necessary to protect the president and keep him in office? I didn't really expect an answer, but within two days an email came back. The answer is no. Mr. Rucklesshouse added, I felt what he was asking me to do, fire Archibald Cox, was fundamentally wrong and unconscionable. In the autumn of 1973, many across the political spectrum agreed with Mr. Rucklesshouse but the change that Ruckelshaus thought his actions might bring was not the change that came to Washington. And those who thought they were the victors then could not have begun to imagine what would happen next. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, and while you're there, you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.